Welcome to First Baptist Belton. By God's grace, we aim to be a gospel-centered people who know Jesus intimately, serve Jesus passionately, and share Jesus globally. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you enjoy the following message. Uh, that was pretty awesome. I'd never heard that song, but boy, man, I was... Uh... I loved that. Thanks, Josh. Thanks, team. Y'all did a great job, everybody who was a part of that. Thank you very much. Well, this morning, we're going to kick off a new series. Uh, it's a Christmas series as we prepare our hearts for uh, what God's going to do in and through us this Christmas. And it's a great series. I've entitled it, A Salvation Worth Waiting For. A Salvation Worth Waiting For. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Genesis. We're going to be in Genesis 1, a little bit in 2, and then we're going to be in chapter three this morning. So the book of Genesis. You know, it's helpful to note that salvation doesn't begin in the New Testament, um, but it begins all the way back in the book of Genesis. And so this morning, that's what we're going to be talking about. Now, maybe you're like me when, when you're a kid, you heard this particular phrase said often, and you, you might even be able to, to finish my sentence here on this. Goes something like this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. You may have said that as a kid. Maybe you said it now. Uh, maybe you've heard that phrase. I know I've heard that phrase. Uh, but the reality is, is that whoever came up with that didn't go through middle school. You know what I mean? Now, the idea behind it was to, to kind of be a defense against name-calling and bullying, um, you know, is to help kind of focus you in on, you know, what, you know, physical things can hurt me, but words can't hurt me. But I'm telling you, um, I don't know who the person is that, that coined that phrase, but they got it wrong. Because words hurt, don't they? Words hurt. In fact, I would say that, that many of us, the things that we struggle with the most, even today, are are based on something that somebody said a long time ago that probably didn't even know you. And yet we carry these things and, and, and words are powerful, powerful. The half-brother of Jesus, he warns us of this in his, his letter in the New Testament, in the book of James. He uses the illustration of a ship in reference to our words. He's, he writes this. He says, you can look at the ships. Though they're so large and they're driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Again, the point here is to simply say that there, are, there is great power in the word, in the spoken word. So much power, in fact, that the universe was created by the word of God's power. That's point number one. The universe is created by the word of God. I want, to, I want you to see that this morning, that the entire cosmos, everything that you see, everything that you know that is in existence, God speaks it into existence. If you're to take a look at Genesis chapter one, there's a couple things that you're gonna see. The first thing that you'll see is that the first words in the Bible are the, is the phrase, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created something out of nothing. He brought order out of chaos. And if you keep reading, he, he sheds light on how he does that. You'll see in verse three that the text says, and God said, 
let there be light, and there was light. In verse six, and God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. And notice this phrase, and it was so. God speaks into existence, and as he speaks, it comes to fruition. In verse nine, and God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. Verse 11, and God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed according to its kind on earth. And it was so. In verse 14, and God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And it was so. In verse 20, God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. In verse 24, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. In verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. In verse 28, God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. If you're to keep reading, you'll see in verse nine that it says, God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food. And then to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. You know, God speaks creation. He speaks the entire cosmos into order, bringing bringing order out of chaos, bringing something to nothing. And then at the end of creation, God sits back and he looks at his creation and he says, wow, wow. That is very good. God declares it good. Now, the point of all this is to say that there is great power in words. Again, for the very cosmos began with the power of God's word. The power of God's word. But it is also to say that because all things originated from God, that he holds authority over all of his creation. And that brings us to point number two. Point number two is that God holds all authority over creation by the power of his word. God holds all authority over creation by the power of his word. Here's what this means. All things in heaven and on earth derive their identity and their worth from their creator. It's like an artist. If an artist sculpts a beautiful pot, he or she is the owner of that masterpiece in which they've created. If you are the originator, then you are the owner, which means all authority of that object belongs to you. And so by the nature of God creating everything and him being the originator of everything that you can see, he holds authority over it all. And so if this is true, that God holds all authority over that which he creates, and it is, then all that he creates derives their identity and their worth from him. Now listen very carefully. That means that everybody in this room, who we're gonna talk about this in a minute, is created in God's image. And that means that your identity, your worth, and your value comes not from your job, 
not from what somebody said of you in middle school, not from anything else other than the God of the universe. And that's a powerful truth that has the ability to transform everything in your life, to give you more freedom and more peace in your life than you can ever dare to imagine. Now, back in 2012, there's a movie that came out. It's called The Words. Can you, can you guess what that movie's about? It's about words. It's an interesting movie, and it captures exactly what we're talking about here, this, this idea that there's great power in our words. See, in this story, there's a young, struggling author. He and his newlywed wife, they're living in New York City. He's trying to make it as an author. He's doing everything that he can to make it. You know, he's spending a lot of late nights writing in the dark, you know, early mornings, just writing, 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 and he can never seem to put anything together that a publisher will accept. Well, after a struggling week, he and his new wife get away for the weekend just to get away, to rest and relax, and, and they're in a downtown part of, uh, part of town, and, and they stumble into an antique mall. And in this antique mall, they go to this one shop, and, and the wife looks up in the corner, and she sees this briefcase. She reaches up, she grabs the briefcase, she hands it to, uh, to, the, to the man's name. His name is Roy Jensen, and Roy takes that that uh, briefcase is like, man, this is great. This would be a great thing to carry my laptop in and my manuscripts and all that kind of stuff. And so off they go. Well, it was just a couple of days after that that Rory is, is, is looking through the bag and, and he sees that there's this place in the very back of the bag. It's kind of a hidden compartment and he opens that hidden compartment and there, there's a spiral bound notebook. And he reaches in, he grabs that notebook and, and he begins reading and and what Rory realizes is that it's somebody's manuscript to a book that they had written. But the difference is, is that as he read, he got completely lost in the words. He got lost in the power of the story. And so he read and he read and he read. And then all of a sudden what Rory found himself doing is sitting down at his computer and he, and he starts typing out the words word for word. You know, what started out as just an inspiration, you know, just a, an exercise of inspiration just to try to get some juices flowing. And, and, and what Roy realized at the end of it is he had typed the entire book. And he was so moved that he took that book, he went to his publisher with his name on it and handed it in. Well, of course, as it turns out, this book ends up being the next great American novel, and Roy becomes incredibly successful. He experiences great wealth, great riches. His name means something, man. All of his dreams have come true until one day, one day the original author picked up that book. He began reading it and realized that that manuscript that he lost several years ago had been found. And not only had it been found, but it had been published in somebody else's name. And so he goes to confront Rory and he and Roy are in this interchange and, and Roy is doing everything that he can to build a relationship. He, he doesn't want to get found out, of course, right? So he's, he's pleading with him, hey man, don't, I don't want to be found out. My, my wife doesn't know. Uh, man, I'll do anything that you want for me. I, I will give you money. I'll pay you off. I'll do anything. But oddly enough, the author who originally wrote the book wasn't interested in his riches or his fame or anything else. He he simply wanted what was his returned back to him. It was his life story. See, Rory stole what was rightfully someone else's, claiming it to be his own, 
all the while enjoying someone else's creation. In many ways, this is what's happened to humanity. This is what's happened to us. God created everything by the word of his power, including you and me in this room, the pinnacle of his creation. In fact, Genesis chapter one, verse 27, says this very beautifully, that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created him. But God doesn't just create them, he gives them an identity and a purpose. Their identity is that they belong to him, that they are his children, to walk with him, to work alongside of him, to delight in him. And he gives them a purpose to be an expression of his image on the earth that he created. Again, they're to work with him. They're to live with him, to enjoy him, and to govern the earth under his authority and power. But sadly, this is where it all goes awry. In chapter three, when the very first time God's authority is questioned, God's authority is a question, and that leads us to point number three, that the brokenness on the earth is a question of authority. The brokenness that you and I feel even today is a question of authority. You'll see this very clearly in Genesis chapter three, verse one. Text says that the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, notice what the serpent says to the woman. He looks at Eve and he says, did God not, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And here's what the woman said to the serpent. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, oh, you will not surely die. And here it is. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will become like God, knowing good and evil. See, in the garden, Satan slithers into the scene, onto the scene, and he begins to rob God of what is rightfully his. And he does this by questioning his authority. Did God actually say, are you sure you read that text right? Are you sure your hermeneutics and your interpretation is right? Are you sure he didn't say something else? Maybe you misheard him. And even when Eve tries to fend off his words, Satan remains persistent. He doesn't give up. He looks at Eve. He begins to twist God's word to mean something that it doesn't. And he tells Eve, you're not gonna die. God just knows that if you eat of that, you're gonna become like him. You will have the authority over your life. You will be the one to call the shots. You will get to sit on the throne of your heart. You will be free from authority. You know, it wasn't just that Eve and Adam bit into an apple. There were a series of circumstances that led them to a point where ultimately they chose themselves over God. In fact, if you get down to the heart of the matter, Adam and Eve believed the, God, the lie that God was withholding something from them. Something good God was withholding from us to the point where, well, maybe God just can't be trusted. Maybe God's not really good after all. 
Maybe he really is withholding something from us. Maybe, maybe we really should be the authority in our lives. You'll see it very clearly in verse six. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate as well. Then the eyes of both were opened, and then knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. You know, the fallout of this is tragic. With a single phrase, did God actually say? The history of the world was changed forever. Wars, disease, heartbreak, loss are paramount. For the very first time, the entire cosmos, including humanity, are experiencing an identity crisis. And we even feel this today, don't we? Do you feel that? Like there's just something off. Something's just not right. You know, sociologists and many psychologists alike would say that we are experiencing now more than ever in history a major identity crisis. We don't know who we are as people. Perhaps more importantly, we don't know whose we are. We have forgotten who the creator is and who the created is. Like Adam and Eve, our culture has taken what is not theirs. Under the banner of progressivism, they have taken God's authority and they've made it their own. Sadly, what we think is progress is just history repeating itself over and over and over and over and over again. We think we're progressing, but really all we're doing is just returning back to another point in history you know, like Rory, this little social experiment, it might seem thrilling, it might even be exciting. Wow, it's progress. But here's the reality. There is a day that will come when we will all stand before the one who holds all authority. We will have to stand and we will have to face the originator. And culture We'll have to stand before the maker of all things who holds all authority and we will have to answer for that. We will have to have an answer and he's gonna come and he's gonna expose it for what it truly is. Nothing but a lie on the bedrock of a misplaced authority. Listen, I'm telling you that the brokenness on the earth is a question of authority. But also, I want you to note this, this is point number four, that while God's authority was questioned by a single phrase, his redemption was, sing, was sealed by a single promise. See, just after the events happened in the garden, God goes looking for Adam and Eve. In verse nine, the text says, but the Lord called to the man and he said to him, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? Right there, I want you to stop and I want you just to think about something. Aren't you glad that we have a God who's the creator of the cosmos who goes looking for his children? We have a God who is the creator 
and the sustainer of all things. And he runs after his children. When the 99 sheep are right here with him, he goes after the one. God doesn't leave them where they are, but he goes after them. I think there's this temptation that when we read this story, we, we could think that God doesn't know where they are. God doesn't know where they, they went, right? There's this question, this moment of question where God does ask, where are you? But the reality is, is if, if we sit and we think that God doesn't know where they are and God doesn't know where they have been and what they have done, we have a major misunderstanding of who God is. God knew exactly where they were. He knew exactly what they had done and he doesn't leave them to fend for themselves but he goes looking for them. He goes running for them and there he finds his children standing before him fully naked, fully exposed and just completely ashamed for what they had done. You ever been there? Where you're just fully exposed, fully vulnerable for the decisions that you've made at the point where you are at life. You know, at their weakest moment, God doesn't leave them, but rather God takes an animal, he makes a sacrifice, and for the very first time in history, blood is shed. The blood is shed for this, their disobedience. He takes the skin of that animal and he clothes Adam and Eve. He clothes their nakedness, he clothes their shame, when he could have lashed out of them, he quietly met them where they were and reminded them that they are his. Maybe you needed that reminder this morning that you are his. If you've placed your faith and your trust in Jesus this morning, you are his. You're his. Now, the reality is is that while God goes after them, he reminds them who they are in him. He reminds them, he says, hey, this is your identity, this is your worth, it comes from me. That doesn't mean that the consequences just go away. In fact, he does kick them out of the garden. We know that if you keep reading in the story. He, he, he pushes them out of the, the garden and for them to never return, the consequences remain. In fact, the, 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 the brokenness that you and I experience today is the result of the decisions that they made all those years ago. But God doesn't leave them in their consequences, but rather he makes a promise of redemption, a promise to fix everything, to fix what is broken and to take back what is rightfully his. And you see that in Genesis chapter three, verse 14. In, in verse 14, uh, God looks at the serpent and he casts a, a curse over the serpent. And then in verse 15, he makes this beautiful covenant. He says this. He says, I will put enmity between you, speaking of the serpent, Satan, and the woman, speaking of Eve, and her offspring that's gonna come after her. There's gonna be enmity between you, Satan, and your offspring, and, uh, and Eve, and her offspring. And then circle this word. And he... He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
Man, this is a beautiful promise, a beautiful covenant that God is making to Adam and Eve that one day a conqueror will come. This conqueror is gonna come to this earth. He's gonna defeat the enemy for good. And it will be in this great battle that he will buy back his people for all of eternity. He's gonna redeem his people. They will no longer have to sit in their brokenness and shame but he's gonna send a Messiah who's gonna come to this earth, who's gonna give his life, shed his blood so that his righteousness would cover your sin and your shame and your vulnerability. And when you're the most exposed, Romans chapter five says, at your absolute worst, not at your best, but at your lowest of lowest, when you've experienced more shame, he's gonna cover you with his righteousness so that you stand right before a holy and just God. This is the promise that you and I have. This is what we're looking to as we we consider Christmas, as we prepare our hearts for Christmas. This is what we're looking to. We're looking to the one who was born on that beautiful Christmas day, who is gonna be the one who's going to buy us back It's gonna make all things right, including you and me and our relationship with our creator. This is a salvation that is worth waiting for. It's a salvation worth looking for. It's a salvation worth longing for. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we come to you today grateful for you, grateful for, well, all those years ago, God, we had an opportunity to walk with you in perfect peace and harmony, God, and we chose, God, we chose ourselves instead of you. God, and this is not just culture's problem, this is also our problem. See, Father, every time that we question your authority over our lives. Every time, every time, God, that we think that we know what is best. Every time, God, when we fail to to see you as good and that you're working all things for our good and that you know what's best for us, every time we question that, Lord, what we're doing is attempting to rule our lives from a stolen throne. So, Lord, I pray that as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, for the arrival of our king, of this Genesis 3.15 conqueror who's gonna put an end to Satan, an end to sin and shame and guilt for all of eternity, God, I pray that you would make room in our hearts for him and him alone to sit on the throne of our lives. And so in the quietness and the stillness of this moment, here's what I want us to do. I want you just to simply say, okay, Lord, with all that's coming up in Christmas, all the presents, all the holiday fun, all the busyness, all the parties, maybe even for just right now, give me, give me a moment to make room for you.
Maybe you need to take some time and just confess. God, I have allowed these other things to roll in my heart. I have failed to trust that you are good, that you are my provider and that you are working all things for your good and your, for my good and for your glory. Now spend some time and just to ask God, <clears throat> ask God to reveal those things. Maybe, maybe it's just it's unaware and, and you just need him by the Holy Spirit to just convict you and open your eyes to help you see where you have failed to trust him, where you have failed to live in obedience to him, where your life has just, your priorities have just gotten misplaced. And just simply say, Father, I wanna come back to you. I don't wanna miss you this Christmas. I don't wanna go another Christmas where it becomes about all these other things except for you. Maybe it's that you need a reminder that it wasn't just Adam and Eve that were in that garden that day, but it was us. We too, just like Adam and Eve, bit into that apple. just simply say, God, I want to be transformed this Christmas. I want to experience your joy, your peace, your grace in a fresh new way. You know, maybe you're in the room and you've, you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus. That for Christmas, the reason why it's never been about Jesus is because you don't know him. You don't know this Genesis 3:15 conqueror who has come to this earth to give his life for you. You know, if you're in the room and that's you, and you're saying, you know what, I want that, all you have to do is say a simple prayer, just admit that you're a sinner, that you chose your authority over God's, and confess that, and then believe that Jesus came to this earth, he lived a life that you couldn't live, he died the death that you deserved, and he was resurrected from the dead, so that you may have life in his name, that if you put your faith and your trust in him, you will be saved and you will uh, be made right with God and you will become a child of this king. If you've made that decision, I would love to talk with you after the service. We'll have an opportunity right out in Connection Central where you can uh, spend some time and we'd love to talk with you and counsel you. But my prayer is, is that you wouldn't leave this room without making that decision today. I promise you, he'll transform everything. He promises to do so. He promises to redeem you and to make all things new. And so, Father, we come to you and we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the joy that we have in you. And it's in the sweet name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. 
If you would like more information, please visit fbbelton.org or call our church office at 254-939-0705. We are located at 506 